So, so Bill, you want to tell the world about how you are the most basic white boy and what your experience with Hitchcock is? Wait, what? The class I took? Yes. You are a basic white film bro. Okay, so I took a class on Hitchcock in college. It was a literature class, thank you very much. It was an IDP, if I recall correctly. I don't remember what that means. It's the... the I like, don't think I knew what that meant in college. It was the... So our college, um, you had to take an interdisciplinary class, which was a class that was taught that bridged multiple uh, areas, like the one that I took, which was both music and theater. Yeah, because we didn't have a music theater program, but we had one class <laughs> that sold out every year. Uh, yes. Before we get into more detail on that, who are we again? Uh, I am your host, Cody Beck. I am Billy Beck, and this is Soon to Be a Major Motion Podcast, the podcast where we motion the podcast. What? <laughs> <laughs> the podcast where we read a book and watch a movie. That was adapted from the book, and sometimes two or three movies that are adapted from the book, and sometimes TV shows. We haven't done any TV yet. I have. Twice. You, you did TV movies. You didn't do, like, shows. Uh, IMDb counted those as episodes of TV. And I almost did the PBS one this week, but... Uh, okay, Sherlock. Or that might not have been PBS. It was on PBS. Anywho, how was your week since we last, uh... Did one of these. <laughs> oh boy. Work is a shit show right now. And that's all I'm going to say about that, because if not, I'm going to get real angry. I got a raise at my job. I'm very excited for you, genuinely. I know that I'm very mean to you all the time, but you deserve this. She's punching me really hard in the stomach right now. She's telling me I deserve every beat. The extra funny thing, just for me, is I know how sensitive these microphones are, and every punch would be completely audible. <laughs> it's not Fight Club episode. We did that already. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so my week was good. We we went to the um, Angel City season ticket holder event last night. Yes, that the, was so fun. At the California Science Center, where we got to pay a lot of money for food truck food that... They had a limited menu, and half of the limited menu was not available by the time we got there. <laughs> that um, poor woman felt so bad for her. Oh, but the burger was good. Um, the drinks were good, and then we got to meet a handful of players, take pictures with them. Um, some other players were doing a press conference-y Q&A session next to the Space Shuttle Endeavor. It was a very cool night. Mm -hmm. 10 out of 10 would recommend. Um, I also remembered... What I wanted to bring up about my week the last time we recorded. Oh, God, what was that? My adventure with the Brazilian food truck. Oh, no! So, when, when I was a kid, uh, we went to Brazil for the first time. And Brazil has a soda uh, called Guarana. Coke made a version of it for years, uh, but the main brand is Guarana Antarctica. And if you watch any international football, they sponsor... Uh, Brazil's national team, their logos on their kits. Oh, I didn't know that. I think I've seen their logo elsewhere in sports, but it's basically Brazilian football. I mean, there's so many sponsors on any given South American kit. Right. So, I fell in love with this drink. Any chance I get, if I see it out in the wild, I grab it. Because it's not 
bottled here. And we're taking our walk on a Friday night, and there is a Brazilian food truck parked a block away from us, and he's got Guarana listed on the menu. And I'm like, are you open? Because it was kind of late, and he looked like he was cleaning up. He's like, yeah, what do you want? And I was like, I just, like, two Guarana if you got them. And he hands me the cans, and he's like, 10 bucks. And I pulled out my phone to pay with my card or Apple Pay. Because we live in 2023. It's the year of our Lord, 2023. And he says, cash only. And I got sad, and I went to hand the cans back to him. And he was like, oh, just come back later. I'm here all week. So we're like, cool. Take the Guarana home. I feel guilt about this because of my upbringing. <laughs> so the next day, we walk to 7-Eleven. I get 40 bucks in cash out of an ATM. We hunt down the food truck, and I'm like, 40 bucks will be able to cover the two Guarana I got last night, and we can get dinners too. So we go, we order some food from there. I had garlic chicken thighs. You had... Picanha. Picanha. Food was excellent. I got more Guarana. He said, that'll be $45. (laughs) (laughs) At this point, he knew I was good for it because I came back. (laughs) So I gave him the 40 I had and I was like, I will be back tomorrow. Went back to 7-Eleven, took $40 out again, found him again, handed him $20 (laughs) and said, I don't need anything. Keep the change. The food was great. You are the best. (laughs) So that was... uh, one of the more embarrassing things I've done in the last couple of years. <laughs> but I got Guarana out of it. Yes. The food truck is incredible. If you are in the L.A. area, I am going to name and shame the kind gentleman who made killer Brazilian barbecue food. It was absolutely incredible. He knew what he was so, about, too. So I was like... It's not real Brazilian barbecue unless there's just a pile of feijoada on the plate. And there was a pile of feijoada on the plate. He had, like, grilled pineapple, garlic bread, a salad, which was fine, um, rice, and then the the meat. It was an excellent plate. Uh, It's just called Brazilian barbecue. I'm looking at the truck. Um, BMB Churrasqueria 1 on Instagram. (laughs) That was abysmal, and I know that. (laughs) I did not learn Portuguese when I went there. Uh, B-M-B-C-H-U-R-R-A-S-Q-U-E-R-I-A-1. Um, dude's SoCal local. He caters. Uh, it seems like he'll come if you call. So if you're in L.A. and you want some dope-ass Brazilian barbecue, that dude knows how to throw it down. He he immediately had my heart because, uh, first of all, he gave you guarna, and second... When I ordered the picanha, he looked at me and he was like, garlic? <laughs> and I said, yes, absolutely. And he slathered that slab of meat with garlic. Oh, it was so good. It was such a good dinner. Um, but speaking of having hearts, we're talking about a little story today. The Telltale Heart? <laughs> Did they, make, they, they have to have made that into a movie. Oh, I'm sure. Um, talk about Rebecca, the huh? 1938 novel. By Daphne du Maurier. Thank you, I would have butchered that. Uh, which was adapted to film in 1940 by Alfred Hitchcock. What was your first experience with Rebecca? Um, weirdly enough, I took a ghost story class in college. This was not part of that curriculum. 
I understand why. I do too. Um, but it's just funny because we also took Vampire and a lot of other gothic fiction like, you know, Dracula, Carmilla. Yeah. Well, um, that was all vampire. Like, there's no ghosts in Rebecca. Right. I'm surprised you weren't assigned Agatha Christie's A Haunting in Venice. <laughs> Kenneth Branagh, you will have to answer for your crimes. So, you didn't take uh, you didn't read it in your ghost stories class. Mm-mm. I was not like I didn't like gothic literature. I didn't li- I don't like Wuthering Heights even now. Sorry, whatever. I just Heathcliff is not my type. Um I really liked Jane Eyre when I read it in um I think I read it for the first time in middle school. Jesus. Uh, yeah, I really liked it then, but each subsequent reading, I'm like, mm, this is real sketchy. Uh, and then I just, I'm, I don't know. It just never really was something that I was interested in. Even like Northanger Abbey is my least favorite Jane Austen. Um, and that's her making fun of the gothic genre. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I really didn't have any experience with it. I was more familiar with it being uh, the Hitchcock movie than anything else. So I guess that's how I get into my side of this. Yes. How are you familiar with? So Hitchcock was one of the few directors I understood as a what's the phrase I'm looking for? Autor? I guess. Yeah, he's one of the he's one of the first directors whose names I knew and could like understand his style even from a young age. And that came from my dad when we were kids. And I mean like I had to have been less than 10 because it was before we moved in 98. Uh he rented The Birds from oh, Blockbuster. Family friendly fun time. <laughs> and I definitely watched it. <laughs> And I don't remember being scared. I thought it was hilarious because I think at one point birds fly into a gas station to make it explode. And I thought that was fucking hysterical when I was a kid. I could be misremembering and conflating it with Birdemic because I haven't seen the birds since 96 or whatever it was. Really? That wasn't part of the class? No. Um, The other thing with Hitchcock was back in the early days of Universal Studios, there was a Hitchcock... uh, It wasn't a ride, but it was like a... An attraction, like a museum or I remember video thing. I remember that vaguely because I remember staying far away from it because I was a scaredy cat. I didn't like going on the rides when we went when I was a little kid, but I didn't mind like the shows. And when we went a few years back, we saw the special effects one. So good. I remember seeing that when I was a kid, and I remember doing the Hitchcock one when I was a kid. And I also had a book about Universal Studios. It was. Like, of course you did. It was like one of those um, travel guides. Yeah, it was like a guide to the thing, and I remember flipping through the Hitchcock pages and reading them and and learning about like, oh, this was a director who was big, like real fucking big, and here's his style and here are his movies and he's famous and he's legendary and all this stuff. So when I got older and was able to explore more movies, I would seek out random Hitchcock. Fast forward to college, I think it was my senior year. They offered a class on Alfred Hitchcock that was technically a literature class. So probably everything we did in that class we'll be doing on this podcast eventually. (laughs) Like Strangers on a Train, Psycho, all this stuff. Uh, But the base of the class was we would go in three days a week 
and watch the movie over the course of those three days. And then we talk about it on the Friday and occasionally write papers. And one of the movies we did this for, and it was actually one of the only two novels we had to read, was Rebecca. So, Which is fascinating. So I don't lose my diploma. I definitely read Rebecca in college. <laughs> and I definitely stayed awake every time we put it on in that class. Because I definitely did not have a friend who sat behind me giving me head scritchies for 45 minutes, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, during which I would doze off. Really? They only... Man, I can't... That's such poor planning. It's a it's a class themed around movies, and you don't do the Tuesday, Thursday with the 90-minute classes? Right? Like, I had a Tuesday, Thursday class my junior year that was a four-hour class. Was that director studio? Yeah, and it was technically a three-hour class, but if we weren't there for the hour beforehand, we'd get docked and we all knew it. Because that uh, professor was a professor. <laughs> I don't want to say too much more. Um, but no, Hitchcock, yeah, it was, it was, as far as I recall, it might have been Tuesday, Thursday, actually. I know that we had to split the movies over multiple things, though. And our final, uh, which was my favorite final I ever took, was that he handed out the little blue books for essays, and we watched, uh, see, the 39 Steps of the Man Who Knew Too Much, and we had to write a, a paper after the movie was over about why is that a Hitchcock movie. And I was, like, the one person in the class who didn't just go into themes. I went into the uh, technical side and the structure of techniques that Hitchcock regularly used. And, of course, I dropped in, like, the first thing you see is Alfred Hitchcock himself. He always puts himself in this movie, so there's one mark. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was a very fun essay to write. I got good grades. The 39 Steps is the one where it's, like, the guy in the theater that knows the secret society, right? And it's like you start in the theater and you end in the theater. Like he stumbles upon it, yeah. Yeah, okay. But I have it here. I've just It's been a minute since I watched it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's probably my favorite class I took in college. And Rebecca was the one part of the class that bored me. And I'm not going to lie about that. Because everything else was like... I'm pretty sure we did Psycho. We did... Ver okay, so two things that bored me. Vertigo sucks. Vertigo definitely sucks. I'm going to get eviscerated <laughs> for saying that, but Vertigo is not a good movie. It's okay. I said it too, and I'm a woman, so they'll go after me. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Taking the bullet for your man. <laughs> but, like, I, I think my term paper was on Frenzy, which is, like, one of the weird Hitchcocks no one knows about, and it was uh -huh. fucking stellar. Um, we did a lot of his older stuff. North by Northwest. Which is your favorite. Oh, I love North by Northwest. So, anywho. Great class. Loved taking it. Wish I could remember the professor's name to give him credit, but I cannot for the life of me remember who taught that class. It wasn't Archie, was it? No, it wasn't Archie. It was the other film guy. Yeah. Oh, Archie. Um. So yeah, that's where I, I came to know Rebecca. And then a few years ago, Netflix did their adaptation of it. Yep, they sure did. So you came home one day with... The exact edition of Rebecca that I have back east. Yep. And the Criterion release of it. Yes. And we decided since it's the start of Spooky Month, happy October, mm. we dig into some Master of Suspense, Alfred Hitchcock, and we do some spooky shit. It's interesting that you say that Rebecca bored you because I agree with you. Because <laughs> I actually, I wasn't completely truthful. I did read it before. I read it um, when I came home with it back in like 2019, 2020. 
Right. And it took me an eternity to get through, like, the first hundred pages. You, I, for those of you that are, of course, listening and do not live with me and don't know how quickly I read, I read exceptionally quickly. I can read a 400-page book in one sitting. Like if you I, did that with Jurassic Park after yes. we recorded. You like reread that thing. <laughs> yes. Um, the first Rebecca, the edition of Rebecca that I have is 380 pages, and it took me, I kid you not, a solid week to get to the point where they get to Manderley the first time. Damn. Which is like not even the first hundred pages. <laughs> Jesus. Well, once, it, once we got to Manderley, it picked up, but I was like, oh, if I have to listen to this girl whine one more time. Well, it's not going to take us a week to get to Manderley this time. It's just going to take us about two minutes while we watch a trailer. Announcing the return of the most glamorous motion picture ever made, David O. Selznick and Alfred Hitchcock bring you the Grand Slam Prize winner that made motion picture history. Winner of the Academy Award, voted by America's critics as the best picture of the year. And now, as a result of a national poll, winning new honors as audiences throughout the country vote to see it again. The Selznick Studios' successor to Gone with the Wind, Rebecca, brought to the screen with all the warmth and emotion that made millions of readers acclaim Daphne du Maurier's bestseller as the most exciting love story of our time. The fascinating Max de Winter lives on the screen in the person of Laurence Olivier. Why, it's Max de Winter. How do you do? The shy, unsophisticated young girl who dared to follow in the footsteps of the beautiful Rebecca is portrayed by lovely Joan Fontaine. How could I ask you to love me when I knew you loved Rebecca still? Whenever you touched me, I, I knew you were comparing me with Rebecca. What is the mystery of Rebecca? What dread secret is hidden within the silent walls of Manderley? Not only in this room. It's in all the rooms in the house. I can almost hear it now. Do you think the dead come back and watch the living? Tell me, is Mrs. Van Hopper a friend of yours or just a relation? No, she's my employer. I'm what is known as a paid companion. I didn't know companionship could be bought. There is mystery, love, and laughter in Rebecca. The motion picture is still unsurpassed for suspenseful romance. So we just sat down and watched that trailer. Cody, thoughts? Oh boy, they did not get... Whoever created that trailer did not understand the heart of this, which is not a love story. <laughs> You'll have romance and laughs in Rebecca. I mean, I might laugh, but it's not for the reasons you think. In fairness, and this is one of my favorite things about Alfred Hitchcock, he has a brilliant sense of humor. And I did laugh at intentional jokes numerous times during that movie. There are a lot of dry jokes, but they're usually made at the expense of the characters. 
uh, in the book. Like, there's a lot of, like, class play. And there's a point where she's hanging out with... Don't look at me like that. A lot of class play? I hate you so much. Hey, don't yuck their yum. (laughs) I don't need to. They have lots of money. Um, Playing with their class? (sighs) Sorry. I'm so (laughs) immature. So, there's a point where, like... Max DeWinter is basically chiding Mrs. Van Hopper and he does it like a solid like couple of minutes of conversation and the narrator is picking up on it. Ms. Van Hopper does not pick up on it until the end and it's really uncomfortable and I feel like there's no jokes per se in the novel because the narrator is so thin-skinned and uncomfortable and unsure of herself that she can't make fun of herself. Yeah, the 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 jokes aren't on her, but there are. It's like situational. It's it's a similar style of joke to what you get in the office. Oh, so I would hate it. Oh, you would hate it. <laughs> it's tense as fuck. Um. There's there's a bit when she meets uh, Beatrice and uh, fuck what's her husband's name Giles Giles and uh, Beatrice is asking her like oh do you or Giles is asking her do you ride do you do this do you sail and she's like no well that's good then and then everyone gets real uncomfortable <laughs> yeah <laughs> as, as he realizes exactly what he said it's very funny a similar moment plays in the book where um they have that conversation. And, um, she's like, oh, I don't, I don't sail, but I bathe. Is the bathing safe in the bay? And then she realizes that everyone has gotten uncomfortable and she's like, oh shit, I did the thing. Um, before we get too in the weeds, do you want to give a little book report? (laughs) Yes, I will give a little summary. Just a little one? So, uh, this is going to be a real quick summary because this is pretty common. Super straightforward. Um, the unnamed narrator meets Maxim DeWinto. Win- oh <laughs> Maxim DeWinto Green. <laughs> Lifesavers are named after him. That's where he got his money. Um, <laughs> Maxim DeWinto, while she is working as a paid companion to an American woman in Monte Carlo. So, real quick to cut you off. You keep yes. saying she. The narrator is unnamed. Correct. Would it be easier if we just assigned a random name to this unnamed audience insert character. Something like simple like Mary Sue. I hope you can feel the judgment. That's a no? (laughs) The original screenplay named her Daphne, so... Which, that was also written by Daphne du Maurier, I believe. The screenplay? I think so. I I think there's a stage play. It might be the stage play that she wrote then. Yeah, because I think Hitchcock had to pass the screenplay, oh. but he's not the credited writer. Yes, that's, sorry. You said screenplay, and I was thinking about the stage play. So okay. yes, the stage play was written by Daphne du Maurier. The screenplay is not an adaptation of the stage play, it's an adaptation of the novel. Correct. Um, so, unnamed narrator, a.k.a. Mary Sue, uh, is working as a paid companion uh, in Monte Carlo to an American woman. She meets Maxim de Winter. Uh, over the course of about two weeks, they fall in love, uh, they get married, and they move to his, uh, ancient, uh, household seat, Manderley, which is in the south of England. Um, she really struggles to adjust to the new life, 
at Manderly because everything has a rhythm. Everything, uh, she she is poor, um, so she doesn't have the necessary like skills or background to understand all of what she's supposed to do. So she has a lot of like little faux pas. Plus, she's also you know twenty one. I I love how many times I'll watch a movie and they just don't age a character. And then you come out and like, oh, that character was 14. Like, what the fuck? She is supposed to be 21 and uh, Max and DeWinter is 42. Okay. I think they actually cast actors roughly those ages. Ew. So carry on. Uh, she is, um, for lack of a better word, haunted by the housekeeper, uh, Mrs. Danvers, who was the previous housekeeper to the previous Mrs. DeWinter, who was the titular Rebecca. There is a fancy dress party, a costume party, that is held, and our Mary Sue shows up at this party, um, in the same outfit that Rebecca had worn at her last party, uh, she had kept it a secret from the rest of the household because they were making fun of her, teasing her. Uh, and she's like, you know what? I'm going to show up and it's going to be great. And, uh, Mrs. Danvers, knowing that she had kept it a secret, encouraged her to use this outfit because she wanted to shame her and show how much she doesn't, uh, compare to Rebecca. Uh, she is horrified by her mistake, uh, cause she knows, she is under the impression that, uh, her husband thinks she did it on purpose. Um, she almost kills herself at that point. Um, I believe this is the point where Mrs. Danvers, uh, is basically talking her into jumping out of the balcony of Rebecca's room. A shit, conveniently saving her rockets go off. And it turns out a ship has run aground in the cove on the coast where Manderley is located. And when they go down to try to break the ship, uh, they discover a sailboat trapped underneath it that has been sunk with a body in the cabin. The body is Rebecca's body because she was lost while she was sailing. But but Maxim identified a body two months after she went missing. Yes, he sure did. Oh, no. How are they sure this is Rebecca's body? Do, uh, do they explain that in the book? Yes. Yeah. Even though her clothes had rotted away, she was wearing jewelry. She's wearing, like, monogrammed jewelry, and, like, I think they specify it's got her dark hair. Um, she doesn't... They don't have any hair, because everything has been rotted okay. away. I think the Netflix movie specified the hair and stuff, but it was like, there is zero doubt that this yeah. is... Yeah. Um, it's also very clearly her specific sailboat, uh, which it is named Je Reviens, which means I come back in French. I think they changed that because I think in one of the movies, the sailboat is called the Rebecca. <laughs> she is. Oh, boy. In, she is. She is definitely. I might be misremembering that because I was stoned when I was watching the Hitchcock and I was working when I was watching the Netflix. So <laughs> I might have gotten that detail wrong. Yes, that is a that is a very specific foreshadowing detail is that her sailboat is called the Je Reviens because our unnamed narrator sees it written on the mooring where it used to be. Uh, and so once the sailboat and the body are found, uh, Maxim reveals the truth to his wife. 
he had killed Rebecca for having an affair and getting pregnant and basically blackmailing him into um, keeping the child. Uh, and he had sunk her boat with her body inside. Yes. Um, it wasn't just an affair, if I recall correctly. It's that from the moment after they spoke their vows, she revealed to him that she had no intention of keeping them. Um, yes, it, they had gone on, in the book, they go on their vacation in Monte Carlo on their honeymoon. Yeah. Uh, she reveals to him basically that she, it's never specified what the actual information is, but apparently she is basically a monster, uh, in terms of social reputation and she has just hit it. Uh, so it will essentially tank his and Manderly's reputation if any of this information gets out. So they make an arrangement that she can do as she likes, uh, which basically means she fucks anything and everything that will let her. Like her cousin. Her cousin. uh, The person on the estate, uh, the the agent, Frank Crawley, uh, her (laughs) brother-in-law. Mrs. Danvers? uh, I don't think, I don't agree with that, actually. Okay, we'll talk about that. Yes. (laughs) Um, the coroner's report comes back that it was suicide, and that's when uh, Rebecca's cousin and lover, Jack Favell, accuses Maxim of murdering Rebecca. The magistrate heads out to investigate the matter because they discover in her planner there was a note. She had left a note for Jack Favell that said, um, I have something important to tell you. Come down to my cottage as soon as possible. Because she had a little cottage where her boat was moored. um, And she basically would frequently entertain her callers there. So he got that note, but he didn't get it until the next morning. uh, After, of course, she was already dead. It turns out that she was seeing a very specific woman's doctor in London. And it turns out that she actually had horrible horrible cancer and also just for funsy she had a malformation of the uterus which meant that she could not in fact get pregnant well you you have what you are right (laughs) uh so the death is officially ruled as a case of suicide the magistrate basically threatens jack favell for blackmailing because the reason he didn't he was at the inquest did not bring anything up at the time of the inquest because he wanted to blackmail uh maxim for money Uh, So the magistrate is like, yeah, so now that this has 100% officially been considered a suicide, you show your face in our county again, and I will make sure that you do not leave it for the rest of your life. Um, To Favell for the blackmail? Yes. Yeah. Um, So they are, so it's about a six hour drive back from London to where they are. And it is already in the evening at this point, because of course they've done the six hour drive up at this point. So... They stop for dinner and they check in with uh, the agent, Jack Crawley, and he tells them, oh, by the way, Mrs. Danvers has disappeared from Manderley. And all of their warning red flags go off and they drive insanely fast through the night. And by the time they get back to Manderley, it has already been consumed by flames, assumingly set by Mrs. Danvers as retribution because she has figured out that Maxim did, in fact, kill Rebecca. And that's the end of the novel. Okay. <laughs> So I will say the 1940 and to its credit, the the 2020 Netflix movies are very similar. Um, very, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, 
Faithful? Faithful. That's the word I'm looking for. They're very faithful. Like Rebecca was not. And they're both very faithful adaptations. Like Rebecca is not. <laughs> Unlike Rebecca. <laughs> <laughs> um, there are a few differences, obviously, as there is going to be. And I think some of them are very fascinating, uh, specifically in the Hitchcock version. I said we were going to talk about Mrs. Danvers. Yes. Um, how old is she roughly in the book? I don't... It's not specified. Um, her appearance is always described as being skull-like. Um, but that's mostly because the narrator is pretty much petrified of her from the second she meets her. Mm-hmm. Um, she has been with Rebecca since she was a child. So my understanding is that she is at least um, probably the same age as Maxim, if not older. Okay. She's about the same age as Maxim in the movie. Um, At the time, in the 40s, uh, Hollywood had a morality code. I think it's just pre-Hayes code. I think Hayes was like in 44 or something. I did not realize it was that late. Um, yeah, Hayes was only like 20 to 30 years. But there was still like a morality code in the 40s. And as part of that, they could not depict any sort of homosexual relationship. But Hitchcock, ever the Bastard rebel, <laughs> ever the rebel, uh, famously uh, made it a plot point in Psycho that they had to flush money down a toilet so that he could show a toilet flushing on screen for the first time in film history. This <laughs> fucking guy, <laughs> he was like, all right, I'm going to make sure Danvers is a little bit younger. And he has a scene where she's showing Mary Sue a piece of negligee that she, I think, bought for Rebecca or helped Rebecca pick out. And she's showing, like, she puts her hand in it, and she's like, you can see my hand through it. It's so sheer. And it is, like, so sexual without being sexual. And it is 100% implied that they were lovers. That everyone you meet at some point was in bed with Rebecca. Yes. um, That is definitely something that carries over in the novel. That's... Everyone is charmed by her. Everyone loves her. Except Maxim. Everyone wants to sleep with her. I don't... I don't think that they were lovers in the novel. I would... I do believe that Mrs. Danvers had a creepy obsession with her. Mm -hmm. Whether or not that is unrequited romantic love, you could... I could definitely see that. Um, It more struck me as that kind of possessive psycho love. And I'm using psycho, the the Hitchcock. Oh, yeah. Like... Norman Bates and his mama. Yeah, like, she, she like, lived vicariously through her, but also she was her best companion, um, and she knew all of her secrets, and she was told all of her secrets, and it's it's kind of like a, a mom-sister protective, but, like, diseased love that she has for Rebecca. Like an, like an unhealthy codependent kind of relationship. Yes, yeah. but it's only, it's only codependent on one side. Yes. It's actually... <laughs> I feel like you could make a comparison between the obsession that Mrs. Danvers has for Rebecca and the obsession that our narrator has for Maxim. Ooh. Because it is that same kind of obsessive need for that other person. Because you have nothing of your own. Yeah. 
Another change I want to talk about, and this is probably the biggest change, is how Rebecca dies. Yes. So in the novel, as well as the Netflix version, he reveals that he shoots her. Maxim shoots her when he finds out that she's pregnant. Well, when he is led to believe that she is pregnant. Yes. She essentially goads him into shooting her. Um, He then puts her body in the boat, sails the boat out into the bay. um, Drills holes in the bottom. Drills holes in the bottom, opens the seacocks. And then he rows back, and I believe before he even sails out, he actually cleans up all the blood so that it's it has time for the salt water to kind of wash it away. Yeah. Um, and then he goes back to his room. So this all takes place around it's before midnight because Mrs. Danvers actually goes to see him at midnight, and he's back in his room because she's worried that Rebecca has not come back yet. Right. So in the Hitchcock, because of the code, you could not have somebody kill their spouse and not be punished in film. But he is punished. He's not. So what they do instead is he explains that she had been weak the past few weeks. Yep. And we're led to believe at that point in the story that it's pregnancy, but we know it's the cancer. Yes. And they have their their spout. Spout? Their Spat? Spat. It's like spat and rout just had a baby and came out wrong. They have their spat in the boathouse. And then she gets up to leave because he can't do it. He can't bring himself to kill her. Mm -hmm. And in her weakened state, she slips on a rock and hits her head and dies then. And he uses the boat to just dispose of the body. Well, if he had just, you know... Taken her to a doctor, it would have been like, oh, she was dying of all of the cancer, and he wouldn't have the problem. The thing is, you and I both have read and heard and seen enough true crime shit to know that even if he had taken her to a doctor and been like, she slipped on the rock and hit her head, every doctor would have been like, you but, sure? But also, he's a rich man. I don't know if I believe In the you, south buddy. of England. And... Mrs. Danvers would 100% corroborate his story because the one thing that Rebecca did not want was a lingering death. She wanted to die quickly. Yeah. So Mrs. But Danvers, Danvers didn't know that. She didn't. But once they found out about the cancer, she could corroborate that story. You're right. Yeah, they would have gone through all the steps they went through anyway, just immediately. Yes. Like they would have seen the doctor the next day and he would have been like, oh, is she okay? She died already? Shit. I gave her three weeks, not three hours. Like, <laughs> uh, is She has, I want to say she had six weeks in the book. That sounds right. That yeah. sounds right. Uh, so yeah, that's the other massive change. Yes. Um, I think there's some minor changes. So, I wrote out a series of questions when I was watching the Netflix one. Okay. Because I knew, going into uh, Hitchcock's, that it was very faithful. Because the producer, Selznick, whose name is all over it, because he was that kind of guy. Mm, Producer? He he wanted it to be as faithful as possible. Mm -hmm. Um, Hitchcock still... Made some things work, and they had to change some things for code. Yes. So I was curious watching the Netflix. What did Netflix change? So, some questions I have for you. How much backstory do we get on Mary Sue's past? We get very little. Um, We get basically that she is essentially an orphan. Um, Her parents were very much in love, and she was devoted to her father, 
who was a professor or a teacher of some kind. Um, he died suddenly when she was like early teens, like late childhood, early teens. Um, and her mother basically died within six weeks of him. Um, and so she was an orphan. At that point, she is, when we meet her, she's been working for Mrs. Van Hopper uh, for 90 pounds a year, I think. I didn't do the... Oof. I didn't do the math on that, but it's not very much money. No. Um, and she tells Maxim all of this over, like, one lunch. <laughs> and uh, that is all of the background that we get on her. We get that scene in the Netflix, and that's all we get. I don't remember that being in the Hitchcock at all. Yeah. Um, and it's really just like, oh, my dad died, then my mom died shortly after, and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. She, it's, the little story that we get on her is basically that she saw how much, how devoted her parents were to each other, and she absolutely adored her father, and the, their deaths essentially shattered her. Second question I have, do they explicitly fuck in Monte Carlo? No, they do not. The um, they hold hands a lot and they go driving, which may have been uh, a metaphor in 1938. Um, oh, he's driving a whole six inches down the tunnel. <laughs> That's is, giving him a lot of credit. This is old money, man. You know it's like and three a and a half. <laughs> if he uh, even makes it to the tunnel. <laughs> so. They do not explicitly have sex, but they do have, like, scandalous romantic... Like, she is constantly worried that someone is going to tell Miss Van Hopper that she's hanging out with him. Yeah. Like, that's loosely implied in Hitchcock, but Netflix, like, it is explicit. They they go down. Um, It's funny, though. There's one scene in the Hitchcock that's not in the Netflix, I don't think it's in the book, where they get filmed back from their honeymoon that they take. Where they go around Europe a bit before they go back to Manderley? Yes. And it's very funny because one of the scenes, they're having a picnic. And it's, it's video. Like, it's film film. Yeah. And they're watching it. And I think he says, oh, this is the one where we set it up on the tripod and just let it record. And you see them, like, on a picnic blanket next to a car, like, coddling a little bit. But you don't see the end of that sequence. <laughs> and I'm pretty sure they made a porno. <laughs> they do. They do get photos back from their honeymoon at some point. But no, there is not a porn that they make of themselves. Okay. Um, does Maxim De Winter sleepwalk? Not after he has brought home Mary Sue. Um, they talk about how he would pace his office and or his bedroom and basically did not sleep um, for about six months after Rebecca died okay. or went missing. One of the first nights there at Manderley, he sleepwalks mm -hmm. in the Netflix version. It's never alluded to in the Hitchcock. Does he go into the West Wing? I believe so. That tracks. Okay. Okay. Um, the West, um, they, they live in the East Wing, which faces the Rose Garden. The West Wing was where he lived with Rebecca, and it faces the ocean. Does Mary Sue ever try to fire Danvers? No, she does not. Okay. She is too afraid of her, and she realizes that Mrs. Danvers has all the power. I feel like I understand why they added that to the Netflix one then. 
Because it was something that was bothering me watching the Hitchcock the whole time. I'm like, woman, just say something. Say literally anything. Ask for help. Use your voice. Oh, right, this is 1940 and she's a low-class woman. But understanding a modern audience in 2020, I totally get why they would have her basically tell that Danvers she needs to leave by the end of tomorrow and then eventually renege on that because of some more information she gains. Yeah. But their relationship is a little bit different in the Netflix one. Yeah. Um, her relationship with Danvers is basically that we, as the audience, because we are the audience insert, um, we are led to believe or we are we are terrified of Danvers because she runs the household. She keeps everything ex- Excuse me. Exactly the same as when Rebecca ran it. And she doesn't allow Mary Sue to make any changes. Like, when she tries, everyone is just like, oh, but Rebecca did this. Or Mrs. Danvers straight up is like, "Mm, we did it this way before. Um, And when she finally does gain her power, which is after she finds out, of course, about Rebecca... Um, and she starts um, changing the menu and doing things her own way. Um, Mrs. Danvers is like, what are you, Rebecca always did it this way. And she's like, I'm not Rebecca. I am Mrs. DeWinter and you will listen to me. And this is like yeah. way too late in the story for it to matter. That was in both versions. Okay. Um, I'm talking about like earlier before we know the truth about Rebecca, before the party and everything. Yeah, no, she never tries. And it's basically because she, to an extent, even sees herself as one of the servants because she gets her own ladies made and she goes and meets her mother and stuff. And it's like, oh, it's not like working with a lady. It's like working with one of us. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's, that's like the constant struggle with this character is first, the big plot point, like the, you know, the trope of, um, misunderstanding that you have in like everything where it's like, if someone would just say one fucking thing, we would clear this up. It's not until you get the truth about Rebecca that like her fears are settled because she's like, oh, he never loved Rebecca. Mm-hmm. He was just, it was a marriage of convenience for him. But the, because the whole time she just keeps comparing herself and she is her own worst enemy. You would know about that. Moving on. <laughs> um, when the inquest is happening, does Danvers A, take the stand and B, lie on the stand? No. She, not at the actual inquest. Okay. Um, there is a, after Favelle has tried to blackmail, um... Like, Maxim calls the police, and, like, the cop comes in, and Danvers come in and have that meeting before they go to the doctors, right? Yes. Okay. She and Favelle are both present at the inquest, but neither of them take the stand. So, the Netflix one did some really fucky shit with that whole third act of this. Okay. The the court drama sequence of (laughs) Rebecca. Um, because the Hitchcock... They do the inquest. There's some, like, weird things going on. The blackmail attempt happens to which Maxim immediately brings in a police officer. And he's like, he is trying to blackmail me because of this. Let's get this sorted out. And then they go up to the doctors and they figure out the and come back. Um, in the Netflix one, Danvers herself takes the stand and she lies about something. I didn't write down what she lies about, but she lies, like, on the stand. And then... When Favelle does the blackmail, 
Mm-hmm. Maxon pays him. He tries to buy him off. And then Favel takes the money to the cop. And then... I can see in your face. You don't like where this is going. Wait until you hear where this goes. Um, he takes the money to the police. And is like, he's trying to pay me to not say things. They lock up Maxim. And Favel and the cop go to the doctor in London. I don't like that. I'm that- not done. Oh, God. Okay. Do you know who beats them there? Is it Mrs. Danvers? No, Mary Sue beats them there. In the Hitchcock one, she doesn't even go to London. I think she goes to London with Maxim in the book, right? Yes, she does. They she all stays home in the Hitchcock. She beats them there, breaks into the doctor's office, and steals the file. And then she realizes it's cancer. You don't need <laughs> to make so it a fucking action sequence. It's so unnecessary. It's more tense if you don't make it an action sequence. Because the whole point of the the last like third of this book is that you're just waiting for the bad thing to happen. And then you get to the point where it's like, oh, he is fully off scot-free. But there's still all of that tension and you don't know why. Like, you can make changes to how things happen in that sequence for suspense. Because Hitchcock had a nickname. I don't know if you know this. It was the Master of Suspense. (laughs) He knew what he was doing. He definitely knew what he was doing here because this movie won a fucking Oscar for Best Picture. The way he does it, he keeps her at home. And what that does for the audience, she's the audience insert character. As we're watching this movie, we see everything through her eyes. And that helps sell like the difference in class. Because I'm looking around our own apartment, and then I look at this room with a massive fireplace that our entire apartment could fit in, and this is one room in this house that's barely used. Like, it's, it's jarring, and he keeps using her perspective to tell the story to us, and then he removes her from the equation for like 10 minutes. As we're following the crime drama part, and we're going, okay, when they get to the doctor's office, if she's pregnant, he's going to go to jail. They'll never see each other again. He won't make it home. Oh, it's cancer. She's fine. Is she fine? We don't see her. And then on the drive home, I think she says it in the book in Hitchcock's. Maxim says, I have a bad feeling. It is Maxim. It is Maxim in the book? It is Maxim in the book. Okay. He says, I have a really bad feeling. And like he slams on the gas and rushes home to Mandalay burning. And then there's a beat of where is Mary Sue? Is she okay? Because now that he knows he's free, is he really free if the woman he loves and helped him through this trial, is she gone? And it continues that ramp up all the way to the, the, the end credit, you know? But no, instead we just have her, oh, suddenly she's an action hero breaking into a fucking... <sighs> I kind of get it in the sense that, like, you keep having these asides in the book where she is a, a stronger person than she feels that she currently is like she's like oh i'm gonna do this because i am i am strong and capable and she keeps faltering because she doesn't actually have that like strong will that she wants to have and the 2020 changing that bit where maxim goes to prison and actually pays favel that destroys his whole arc because the reason he kills rebecca is because he can't stand the lies anymore yeah 
And, and then, that's why he wants everything to be done because he's like, I want this gone. I want to live happily with my new wife in my home and I don't want Rebecca haunting me anymore. She is not going to win. And that's something that's so like endearing about the character at that point in Hitchcock's movie when Favelle comes in and is like, I don't want to sell cars anymore. And he's like, okay, let's go, let's go into the inn. We'll go into the private room. Uh, Frank, bring the cop. And you're just like, all right, let's see where this goes. If I if I go to jail for this, fair. Yeah, he at this point he just can't stand. <laughs> like the, it's the, it's noble. Yeah, he can't stand the 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 um, the stress and the pressure anymore. Like now that that secret is out to his new wife, yeah, he is okay with it being out to the world. Like he's come to terms with it. He's accepting his the guilt of what he has done, exactly. even though he hasn't really done it in the Hitchcock movie. Yeah. The point still stands. Like it's, yeah. it's that acceptance that makes that character redeemable, because he's an asshole for the through the first like two thirds of the movie, yeah. in not saying any of this. Like, it's so interesting because it's like she even says when they're having this confrontation because it's been like four months at this point, um, when they're having this confrontation where she's like I couldn't be with you like. How could I ask you to love me when you still love Rebecca? And he's like, what the fuck are you talking about? I hated that bitch. It's like, I could have, she even says, she's like, I could have brought this to him four months ago and we could have been happy for those four months. Mm -hmm. But instead, this is happening. Like, he even says a a line like that um, right after her body's found. I think it's right before he tells her the story. Mm -hmm. He says, we had a chance to be happy, but it's gone. Yes. And it's like, bro, you could have said something. Just been like, hey, if you really want to marry me, here's the truth of what happened. You got to be okay with this. Yeah. Like, start off there, you know, but... In the book, it is implied that he doesn't do that. It's... mm, There's a lot about not only the class difference, but also the age difference. Because you always have, like... The point of having a relationship like that is the power imbalance. Mm Mm-hmm. And he, the thing that attracts him to Mary Sue is that power imbalance. Because he was previously in a relationship that was the opposite. So even though they, because yeah. essentially he and Rebecca were equals and he didn't like that. Yeah. And granted, well, Rebecca she, was. she held power over him even. Yeah. Like granted, Rebecca was kind of a bitch about it. But also how many relationships were, was that exactly what happened except Rebecca was the man and Maxim mm-hmm. was the woman? That was the actual relationship for so many women at that time. Yeah. But he couldn't handle it. And, and he, now he, he just wants, he just wants a wife who's a puppy dog that's just happy to see him come home. Exactly. No intuition, no. Nope. And he actually says after he tells her about Rebecca, he's like, it's gone. That, that funny, lost, young look yep. you had. It's gone forever. Yep. But it's also like the point where they start being more physically affectionate again. Because they're super physically affectionate on their honeymoon. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it's like slowly you can see them withdrawing from each other. Like they're sleeping in separate beds, but I don't know if that is just the custom of the time or not. I didn't look into I research. I believe that was the custom of the time. You only slept in the marriage bed when you were trying to have babies. Yeah. Um, but then they slowly start clinging to each other more, mm-hmm. um, again, towards the end. And that's something I think that Netflix did pretty well, is making the two characters, like, the power balance more equal. Once he involves her in his crime. Yes. She's an accomplice now. She has stakes in it, too. They start seeing each other more as equals, just as people, and the class kind of leaves it. Yeah. And the end of the Netflix one, they actually have an epilogue where she's telling the whole story from... 
their journey. I think they're in Cairo at this point. And they're journeying around the world trying to find their new home, their new Mandalay. So, um, I actually don't like that. Hmm. Specifically the new home part. Um, But that's the framing device of the book is she is telling this story from a hotel somewhere in, I believe it's implied to be like um, the, not the Middle East, but like somewhere where it's very bright and sunshiny all the time. And she's, the architecture and stuff that she's describing is deliberately vague, but it feels like, um, like Turkish architecture. Okay. Like that kind of like, she talks about plazas and sun and marble and that kind of thing. So it could be your, it could be Egypt. Yeah. Um, so that is actually the framing device of the book is like, she opens it. She's like, I dreamed about Mandalay again last night. Yeah. The famous line. That's, I mean, that's the opening narration of both films. So that is actually the, the device and they are traveling and it's basically because they are, they're still trying to run away from what happened when Manderley burned down because they don't want to have to explain why it burned down. Mm. Why did Danvers do this? Yeah. Speaking of Danvers, what happens to Danvers at the end of the book? You don't know. Okay. The book literally, like, the <laughs> cool. book Good literally answer. ends, hang on, with them. Um... We topped the hill before us and saw Lanyon lying in a hollow at our feet. There to the left of us was the silver streak of the river widening to the estuary at Carith six miles away. The road to Manderley lay ahead. There was no moon. The sky above our heads was inky black. But the sky on the horizon was not dark at all. It was shot with crimson like a splash of blood. And the ashes blew toward us with the salt wind from the sea. So, in Hitchcock's, because villains need to be punished under the code... Mm-hmm. Danvers lights the building from the inside and, and is crushed by the burning building. Okay. Like, burning beams fall from above and destroy her. Yes. In the Netflix, she jumps off a cliff into the sea to be with Rebecca. That tracks. Both of them, I I think, are satisfactory. I have no issues with either of those. Yeah. Um, her... She has removed all of her stuff and she has supposedly left. Um when he has the bad feeling. I am of the opinion that she burned with the building because she would have wanted to. Yeah. But yeah, you, there is no official explanation for what happened to her. Okay. Cool. Do you want to hear more about the movie? Absolutely. All right. Directed by Alfred Hitchcock, you know, the fat guy. <laughs> um, the writers were Robert E. Sherwood. Uh, he won the Oscar for his screenplay for The Best Years of Our Lives. Uh, co-writer was Joan Harrison. She was the first female nominee for an Oscar for screenwriting. Okay. She For this and for Hitchcock's foreign correspondent, both the same year. Dang, okay. <laughs> yeah, 1940. He had okay. two movies up. Um, this was his first uh, U.S. production as well. Up until his contract with Selznick, he did everything in the U.K. Then he moved to L.A. This was his first... His first Hollywood picture, which is very funny that it takes place in Cornwall. Yeah. <laughs> and he hired just all the British actors. Um, speaking of, Mary Sue is played by Joan Fontaine. Later won an Oscar working with Hitchcock for Suspicion. Uh, Maxim was played by Laurence Olivier. The king himself. He won the Oscar playing Hamlet. Yep. Mrs. Danvers was played by Judith Anderson. Oscar nominated for this. <laughs> I get it. She's she's killer. Uh, Hitchcock did something real fun with her. You never see her walk. 
either she appears, like a character turns and in a camera cut she's suddenly in the room, or she effectively glides when she's moving. It's fascinating. I don't think she blinks either. Oh my god. <laughs> but I could be misremembering that. I could be conflating that with something else. Um, and the other one, Jack Favell, uh, was George Sanders. He was uh, Addison DeWitt in All About Eve. He also played Mr. Freeze in the Adam West Batman TV show. Oh my god. <laughs> He's like the only main character that did not get nominated for an Oscar. Ooh, okay. Um, like I said, this was Best Picture 1940. Um... Although I don't think Hitchcock was nominated for this, for director. I don't remember if he was or not. Because he's had like five nominees, but he never won for directing. But anyway, um, so Selznick, I've brought his name up a few times. He had a reputation for being a very hands-on producer. Mm-hmm. And from what I could tell, from what I read... He and Hitchcock got along, but their styles kind of clashed. And an example of this, probably the most famous example from this movie, is the letter R. Rebecca's monogram appears everywhere. It's on books, it's on letters, it's on pillowcases, it's on the back of a hairbrush. It's like everywhere. It's that constant reminder. Selznick had this idea that when Mandalay burns to the ground... A big R appears in the smoke above it. And Hitchcock went, the fuck? No. Not doing that shit. That's a terrible idea. So Hitchcock shot and edited as much of the movie as he could in camera, shooting only what he wanted to appear on screen and not getting additional coverage so that Selznick couldn't ruin it in the cut. (laughs) (laughs) And instead he replaced it with the, um, the negligee bag, which had the R surrounded by flames on Rebecca's bed as like one of the final shots of the movie. It's the only film since 1936 to win best picture, but no Academy Awards for acting, directing or writing. Wild. It won best picture. And I think it won cinematography that year. Okay. Um, who beat Lawrence Olivier? I should look that up. (laughs) I fucking read it too. Uh, Well, while you're looking that up, I'll talk about the book a little bit. Uh, The book was published in 1938. It has never been out of print since 1938. Um, It has been continuously issued. Uh, It was submitted in... I want to say they submitted it in November. He ordered... uh, the publisher ordered a print run, a first edition run of 20,000 copies. It sold more than twice that in a month. Um, and it's been, I think there's like 38 different um, languages that it's now been released in. Uh, and they, re- and uh, modern, I want to say it's Simon and Schuster, um, whoever currently has it. They say that they sell probably about 4,000 copies a month to well, yeah, date. It's all those students taking Hitchcock classes. <laughs> I had to buy it. Um, I pulled up the page for those Oscars. Rebecca was nominated for 11 Oscars. And it won three? It won two. Oh. It won Outstanding Production. And it won Cinematography for Black and White. Okay. Because uh, they still had split categories back then. Um, director went to John Ford for Grapes of Wrath. Okay. Hitchcock was nominated. 
Uh, best actor, Lawrence Olivier lost out to James Stewart in The Philadelphia Story. Oh, I don't like that. I get it. I get it too, I, but I don't I like it. I love his it. performance in Philadelphia Story. I really I don't do. I like Philadelphia Story. Joan Fontaine lost out to Ginger Rogers. Okay, fair. What's her name? Uh, Judith Anderson. Uh, Mrs. Danvers lost out to Jane Darwell in The Grapes of Wrath as Ma Jode. Which, yeah. Yeah. Okay, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, best screenplay lost out to Philadelphia Story. Okay. But of the two screenplay categories, Philadelphia Story, Grapes of Wrath, Rebecca, The Great Dictator, Foreign Correspondent. Oof. That is stacked. <laughs> 1940 was a good year. Future episode of the pods. <laughs> yeah, a lot of them. Um, I'm not going to go deeper than that. Uh, but yeah, that, that was those Academy Awards in this movie. Um, so I get it. Like, I loved Olivia in this. Jimmy Stewart was better. He just was. On the year. And I feel com- confident saying that 80 years later. <laughs> 83 years later. Oh, dear God. Oh, that's gross. Um, speaking of Lawrence Olivier, at the time, he was in a relationship with Vivian Lee. Uh, Gone with the Wind. Another future episode of the pod. <laughs> uh, another Selznick production, actually. Um, he wanted her to play... Uh, Mary Sue. And Hitchcock said, nah. <laughs> so he was such a dick to Joan Fontaine on set, Olivier was, uh-huh. that Hitchcock was like, you know what? Everybody be a dick to her. That poor girl! Hitchcock did not treat female actresses well. Didn't Tippi Hedren, like, refuse to allow like she, her daughters to work with she him? She didn't work it, like, for a long time after the birds. <laughs> like, um, but... Yeah, he decided to capitalize on this. Just, oh no, sorry. He didn't tell everyone gang up on her. He told her that everyone on set hates you. <laughs> Which, what an asshole! I get his perspective of it. Like, hey, everyone hates that character because she's not Rebecca. Why don't I make the actress feel that? So, she's an actress, dude. Let her do her job. But also, like, nobody except Mrs. Danvers hates her. Wasn't it Lawrence Olivier who said on a different set, like, it's called acting when, like, he was with some method guy? Probably. I need to look that up because I think that was Lawrence Olivier, which makes that extra funny. Uh, but, yeah. So you, you did watch another movie. I did. I did watch the 2020, the Netflix one. Let's talk about the 2020. Um, (laughs) I did not do as much research on it. I just wanted to see how different it was, uh, from Hitchcock's. It was directed by Ben Wheatley. He had a movie come out this year. That is another future episode of the pod. Oh no. He did Meg to the Trench. (laughs) It's a future episode of the pod? Based on a book, baby! Oh god. Uh... (laughs) Screenplay was Jane Goldman, who did... Oh, uh, I think we talked about her before. She worked with Matthew Vaughn on Kingsman and Kick-Ass and Stardust. Yes, we did talk about her. Okay, that's why I liked the script. Um, Not that she changed much from the novel. Our Maxim de Winter. Who in the year of our Lord 2020 (laughs) would you cast to play an old money unhinged, dangerous romantic lead. 
friend of the pod. Army Hammer. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely not friend of the pod. <laughs> oh. Noted cannibal sexual offender. Criminal <laughs> Army Hammer. Do we do we have to say alleged or? We should probably say alleged. Alleged. Um, because I don't think he's been charged of anything, but there were active investigations, and there's an excellent uh, docu series called House of Hammer about him and his family's history of mistreating women and being way too rich to be allowed in society. A consequence? Not for me, thank you. I'm rich. It was kind of funny to me when Army Hammer like became a thing. Because in my hometown, there's an Army Hammer Boulevard. And oh sorry, not Army Hammer, Armand Hammer Boulevard. Yes. And I always thought it was weird that uh Armand Hammer Boulevard, it sounded like Armand Hammer, you know, the, the communist symbol. Which uh, apparently is what his great-grandfather, Armand Hammer, was named after. <laughs> no joke. Oh, uh, boy. But the original Armand Hammer, Army Hammer is named after his great-grandfather, I believe, uh, who was an oil magnate and philanthropist who was also a total shithead. So House of Hammer goes into the history of that family and three or four generations of just monstrous behavior. What was what was it that you said about uh, Max De Winter? You you can't cast Army Hammer and then have me think he didn't do it. Yeah, <laughs> like <laughs> if I didn't know that, like it was basically going to be ruled a suicide. I'm like, I will not believe that he didn't kill this woman. <laughs> I know too much about the real Army Hammer. Who who played Rebecca? Uh, Rebecca does not appear. Really, you don't see her. Even Rebecca in does flashbacks? not appear in either. Oh, okay. Uh, Lily James plays. Uh, Mary Sue. Which, that tracks, yeah. Yeah, she's fine. She's kind of, like... Nothing? Not, nothing in it. Yeah, <laughs> she's straight up an audience insert. Um, An audience surrogate. She was in uh, Baby Driver. Yes, she was. <laughs> um, I'm gonna make a terrible joke, which is... Uh, Rebecca is like an isekai for for people who want to get involved in, in gothic literature because you've just got someone who knows nothing about what's going on. You could just step right into her shoes. I mean, yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't think I have anything else to say about either uh, movie. Yeah, I don't really have any. Oh, we're keeping it under two hours this week then, huh? Hell yeah. So do you recommend the book? Do you want people to read the book? Um, if you, if you like gothic literature, you'll enjoy it. Um, there's nothing about it that for me particularly stands out in a good or a bad way. Um, she's really playing with psychology. Uh, there's a lot of things where it will be like the main character goes into asides, uh, where she's thinking about the ac- the consequences of her actions or, like, the results of her actions or inaction. Um, and sometimes it'll be, like, pages long where she's just thinking about how other people think about her. Um, which, when you're 21, that's the only thing that matters to you. Yeah. Oh, by the way, I did look up... Uh, Olivier was 33 when he shot it, and um, Fontaine was 23. Okay. So they did keep an age difference, but it wasn't as wide an age gap. Weird. Yeah. Weird that Hollywood was better than the book on this one. <laughs> yeah. Although I, I wouldn't blame Hollywood because the source material had it. It's not like yeah modern shit. But um, 
But yeah, they do actually talk about how the age difference is really weird. Yeah. And it, it to feels, her credit. It feels weird. And it's brought up in at least the Netflix one, I believe. Yeah, it's brought up in the the book as well. But yeah. Um it like I said, if you enjoy gothic literature, you'll enjoy this. It was it was fine. Um it's not my favorite. I'm always in I'm always gonna prefer like Regency literature. So Yeah. For the movies it's a tough one. I liked both. Had we watched the Netflix Rebecca when I was in college, I might have enjoyed it more. Just because it's paced a little faster. But it's also more of a psychological drama. Whereas Hitchcock's is definitely a suspense. And we, we joked about how this is like, like the crime thriller part of it. This story is, is broken into, like, three chunks. There's the romance at the beginning. Yeah. Then they get to Manderlay, and it's, like, a ghost story. And then the third act is Law and Order, right? <laughs> so the Netflix one kind of, like, peaks each of those arcs at different points where you'd expect to peak them. And it becomes, like, a psychological drama, basically. Yeah. Hitchcock ramps from the beginning. And he starts uh, planting seeds in the beginning romance section that start sprouting during the haunting section. And then they bloom during the Law and Order, right? Yeah. And he really is a master of that. Because as an adult watching the Hitchcock, I thought it was fucking brilliant. Um, the way that he did that. It built so well. I could feel my heart pounding when he's driving home from the doctors and Mandalay's burning. Because I couldn't remember how it ended. I assumed everything would be fine because, you know, the code... But I've also seen enough modern movies to forget that. And it, it it draws you in. Laurence Olivier's performance is stellar. Joan Fontaine is great in it. She just sells it so well. Uh, Judith Anderson as Danvers is spectacular. Like, all three deserving of their Oscar nominations. It If it didn't come out in fucking 1940, alongside, like, Philadelphia Story and Grapes of Wrath, it'd be an all-timer. Um, and it's still one Best Picture. And that's saying something compared to those other movies that are also wonderful pieces of film. Yeah. So I definitely recommend the Hitchcock. If you don't have access to the Hitchcock, the Netflix one is serviceable. As long as you can stomach seeing Army Hammer on screen. If you can, then you'll have no issue believing that he is a rich man who killed his wife. Because <laughs> he didn't really have to act. Let's be honest. <laughs> Yeah, I actually had... Part of the reason I, I looked into the publishing history of this is because of the way you describe it, that being divided into thirds, um, I was like, man, was this published as a newspaper serial? Because it feels that way. But it was not. It was published as a novel. Yeah, it's it's so weird how it how it's built like that. Um, I will say there was another adaptation of this in 1997. Okay. That starred Charles Dance as Maxim de Winter. Oh, that's oh, that's good. I uh, did not have time to watch it because I thought we were going to be recording this two days ago, and then just haven't felt like watching it in the last two days. It's available for free through PBS. They aired it as part of Masterpiece Theater back in the day. Um, it was originally produced in the UK, but Charles Dance also has that face where, like, I don't believe that he didn't kill his wife. You know. <laughs> Let's see who else was uh, in this one. Angela Lansbury. <laughs> I swear to fuck if Angela Lansbury is in this. <laughs> uh, Amelia Fox played Mary Sue. Oh my god. 
Faye Dunaway was Mrs. Van Hopper. Oh, that's that's good casting. That is good. I casting. love that casting choice because you don't need her for long. She's only in the first act. You just need her to be there and be annoying, and she can do that perfectly. Wait, wasn't she in one of the? No. Why did I think she was in one of the um, Murder on the Orient Expresses? It was no, Michelle Pfeiffer. It was Michelle Pfeiffer. Yeah. Which, weird how this dovetailed nicely with yeah, that. We straight did... out of Poirot into, into spooky season. <laughs> we did not intend that, but like we're not upset by it. It's okay. It's okay. Our next transition will not be as fluid. No, it sure won't. Speaking of which. So, in a couple of months, there is a movie coming out. Actually, uh, some stills from the movie uh, dropped on Twitter the other day, and they look terrible. Oh, boy. Uh, and that movie is a ballad of songbirds and snakes. Yes. Which is the prequel to The Hunger Games. So I know you thoroughly enjoyed The Hunger Games books and movies when they were coming out. In fact, we own a handful of them on DVD. Yes. I've only seen a few of them and didn't really pay much attention back then. So what do you say? The next three episodes, we do The Hunger Games trilogy. And then hit the new one when the new one drops. Works for me. Cool beans. I have less work to do than you for she, once. Because <laughs> i got to watch two movies for one of them. And I have no choice. You you have not seen... Um... I'm going to watch Battle Royale for the next one just as a joke. <laughs> you just want to watch Battle Royale. I love Battle Royale. He's great. Well, you know what's funny? Uh, I have a perfect way for you to, to end this. The music cue that you should use. But I don't know if you want to use it. I don't know if we'll get copyright struck. If you say Friday by Rebecca Black, I swear to God. No. So, I don't know how familiar you are with uh, pop icon Taylor Swift. Uh, besides the fact that I think I met her before she was, like, literally any... Like, I met her, I think, when she was in middle or high school. Uh-huh. Aside from that, and my college roommate uh, was in <laughs> choir with her in high school, I have, like, no anything with Taylor Swift. So, her album Evermore uh, was basically she wrote songs based on a bunch of different novels and pieces of media, and one of them is based on Rebecca. Are you kidding me? No. The song is called Tolerate It. Oh, boy. (laughs) Um. Do we want to fly too close to the copyright strike gods? So, I think we've talked enough about themes of the movie Rebecca that it would make sense to play that under fair use. (laughs) Can we call this a, uh... (laughs) If if that song is not playing at the end of this podcast, it means we got fucked. (laughs) So enjoy Taylor Swift's song or generic music. Somebody's getting fucked. Get fucked. Somebody's getting fucked. Fuck, fuck, fuck. Get fucked, get fucked. <laughs>